Well, this is our fourth example of how not to read Help My Bible's Alive over the next 30 days. Hey, I'm glad we could get all together for this meeting. We're thinking about the summer and planning ahead, and John had some great ideas. Uh, but hey, we, we need everyone to focus. If you could put that book down, uh, it'd be really great for us. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Go right ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I know we've had some conversations. So, hey, it's so a great idea. John wants to put a slip and slide all through the church, uh, you know, get some people. Hey, Scott, I can see that you're still kind of reading. Please yeah. focus. It's a big meeting we're talking I'm about. You. I'm with you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Right. John, do you want to share a little bit? Yeah, I think, uh, I think we're, we're, we're talking about starting down close to the sanctuary, running all the way down that side by the conference center. Sorry, I got it. Scott, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Like, you're not staying focused. This is kind of a big meeting, and you're not staying on track with us. It says encourage one another in the Lord. Yeah, I'm encouraging you to leave the meeting. Help, my Bible is alive. We're entering the final leg of our 30-day Bible challenge in which we've been working to establish new habits for a new year. And we're going to wrap up this particular challenge next Sunday as we celebrate the ways that God has met us in his word. Uh, when people make New Year's resolutions or goals, they generally fall into one of three categories. There are the, uh, the physical, physical fitness health goals. There are the financial goals and the spiritual goals. In January, we've been focusing on the spiritual goals, getting back to the Bible and to the God of the Bible. But before we get to the sermon of the day, I want to recommend to you an upcoming event that fits more in that financial goals category. There's a very simple, often overlooked task, relatively simple, very important, uh, over which many people procrastinate. And here's the invitation, here's the challenge. If you have not made a will, a plan for what happens legally at your death, make a goal to do it this year. That's the invitation. The creation of a will is an often overlooked aspect of stewardship. There's a couple reasons why I'm feeling this so strongly right now. Um, first of all, my own mother passed away this fall, and uh, because everything wasn't done exactly right, uh, probate court has taken longer and been more expensive than it should have been. My parents' life, very simple. Uh, we each had copies of the will, but none of us had the original of the will, and that kicks off the need for a hearing, and I had to get a lawyer involved. And if I'd only been brave enough to have an adult conversation with my mom, a lot of this could have been taken care of and been very simple. The second reason is this global pandemic has caused people to be thinking about the fragile nature of life. I have read that life insurance sales are up right now. The number of people having wills prepared and uh, living trust prepared up right now. As people are starting to wonder, if, if something happened to me, what would happen to my family? And maybe one of the silver linings of a, of a terrible time is people begin to ask deeper questions. So we have a seminar coming up, an estate planning seminar on April 24. This seminar will be entirely online this time, and it is free, sponsored by Ward Church, led by Christian, uh, Christian Financial Planning Ministry, uh, free seminar. And at the end of this online seminar, if you choose, uh, you can decide to schedule a second appointment in which they will write a will or write a living trust for you for free. 
Because this ministry is sponsored by local churches financially, they do not need to charge clients. So this is a great opportunity to get it done this year. April 24 sounds like it's far away. It is not, and you can register for that today, ward.church/estate. Doesn't matter how old you are or how big, how many assets you have. This really is everybody needs a will, and you can get it taken care of uh, this year. So let, let's pray, and then we'll get to the the topic of the day. Well, God, help us all to steward your many good gifts to us in ways that provide for our families, in ways that reflect your priorities, in ways that bear witness to a watching world. We pray for wisdom, courage, and resolve, and we do this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in a sermon series about the Bible. Uh, You've heard many sermons from the Bible, but this is a series about the Bible. What is the Bible? What does the Bible say about itself? It's a four-part series. Nicole Eunice taught part one, the Bible is alive. Uh, Part two was the Bible is light. Uh, Soon, let us last week in part three, the Bible is effective. And today we wrap it up with part four, the Bible is transformative. And the key verse for us today is this passage from Romans chapter 12. Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. That's our key word today. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a very interesting phraseology for the Apostle Paul. Paul doesn't say, transform yourselves. That's not possible. God is the one who transforms He says, be transformed. We're not entirely passive on this. We can open ourselves up to the transforming work of God, or we can close ourselves off as God seeks to renew our minds. Our minds need to be renewed. So turn to someone near you, or if you're at home, someone you're you're with at home, and just tell them this reality. You are not in your right mind. Go ahead and tell them that. You are not in your right mind. That's what the Bible says. Our minds need to be renewed. So today, we're going to look at three biblical metaphors, three metaphors the Bible uses of itself that describe how this renewal works, how this transformation works. Um, These are metaphors, again, from the Bible about itself in this renewing work, this transforming work. And the first metaphor is this, it's water, water. I love this line from the Apostle Paul. Uh, the place he uses this, actually, he's not, he's not talking about water. He's not talking about um, the Bible. He's actually in a section where he's teaching about marriage, how husband and wives should treat each other. And, and the Bible is just this little illustration, this little throwaway line that has become such an endearing image. This is what he said. He's teaching about marriage. And Paul says, husbands, love your wives Just as Christ loved the church, how did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word. That's the line. Washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Christ does a very loving thing for the church. Not only does he die for her, but he cleanses her with the word, with the water through the word, so that she is radiant, so that she is spotless. And imagine the Bible, the words of God, 
washing over your mind, lifting out the impurities, soaking your mind, saturating your mind in the thoughts of God so that eventually your thoughts become the thoughts of the Bible. God's perspective becomes your perspective. You know, David uh, prayed, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And for each of these metaphors, I'm going to give you a two-word prayer that you can pray. And this one, when you open the Bible, pray these, these two words, cleanse me. As you approach the Bible, when you're going to read the Bible, just pray, God, through this word, cleanse me. Lift out the impurities that exist in me. Renew my mind. The second metaphor is this, uh, this one you're familiar with, the sword, a sword. And this is our key passage for this entire series and the passage in which the whole book, Help My Bible is Alive, is based. Let's look at it again today uh, from Hebrews. It says, the word of God is alive and active. That's been our theme all month. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Did anyone else uh, grow up in a church like I did, where as children we did in Sunday school sword drills? Anybody familiar with sword drills? Is it just me? Anybody online, if you did these? Really, just me? None of you did sword drills? Okay, I see a couple hands, a couple slow hands go. All right, let me tell you how it works. A sword drill goes like this. The Bible says that this is a, uh, this is a sword. And so our teachers wanted to teach us this. And so in Sunday school, they would say to all the children, swords up. And all of our Bibles would go up to our side like this. Really, no one did this, just me. Okay, and the teacher would give a passage. She would say, Romans 12.2. And we'd all repeat back, Romans 12.2. And then she would say, go. And the first person to find Romans 12.2 and stand up and read it, that person won the points for that round. That's where we learned to make the Bible into a competition. But what our teachers really wanted us to know was that you need to know how to use this young person. You have to know how to find stuff in here. This is a sword. And the image that I always had, and this, uh, this is a toy sword. They wouldn't let me have a, a real one. But the image I always had of the sword was the sword was in my hands, and I am using the sword, the Bible, to defend myself against attacks. I'm using the Bible to fight the forces of evil in the good fight. I am wielding the sword, the Bible. And there's a lot of cases where that's the right image. But I want to remind you today that this sword is unique and that the sword of the Bible, this sword cuts you. This sword pierces you. This sword divides your soul and spirit. This sword judges your thoughts and attitudes. The sword of the spirit. And and a, and a good example of this cutting work of God is found in the New Testament Peter at Pentecost gives his very first sermon ever. And really, as someone who coaches young preachers, it was only just okay. He, he mostly read a passage of the Old Testament and then he commented on it. It was an okay sermon, very fine. But the response, the response to the sermon is something every preacher would long for. This is what happened after Peter's very first sermon. When the people heard this, Peter's first sermon, when they heard it, they were cut to the heart. Those words that were read, those words that were spoken, they cut into me. 
I, I, I'm different. And, and, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I'm, I'm going to live differently because of the word that I have received. And really, this is what every preacher in the world is really going for on a Sunday morning. We don't always get there. And sometimes you don't know what to say to a preacher after a sermon. A lot of you are very polite. And you stand at the back and you say, nice sermon, pastor. Kind of polite. Some people say, that was a sermon, pastor. Kind of vague. Uh, there's one guy in our church, he would, for many years, he would say, I agreed with that sermon. And I could tell from his background, that was the highest form of compliment you could give to a preacher. I agreed with that. But what preachers are really going for, honestly, it's not agreement. It's not nice sermon pastor. It's not compliment. It's someone saying, I will live differently because of the words that were received today. You have cut me to the heart. That's what preachers want to hear on a Sunday morning. Now, please don't anybody say anything like that to me today. That would appear disingenuous. But that is the power of this two-edged sword. It cuts us. And because the Bible cuts both ways, because the Bible will pierce your heart, I wonder if another image of a sword wouldn't be more precise to think of a surgeon's scalpel. Now, I've made no... uh, uh, I've been very honest about my background, that I have a, a, a fear of needles, and, uh, and I, I get woozy at the sight of blood, and I once passed out during a blood draw, and uh, I'm, I'm getting a little dizzy just thinking about it right now. Right now. Uh, but a few years ago, I was in a doctor's office, and I was told that I had to have surgery um, because of cancer. That's uh, the news you don't want to hear. Some of you in this room have received the very same news. You have a tumor inside of you, Mr. McKee, and we have to cut it out. And if you're wired like me, afraid of needles, I'm like, Did, uh, cut, cut, cut it out. Couldn't, isn't there some medicine I could take? Uh, preferably liquid medicine or small capsules that aren't very easy to swallow. Is there any easier way around this? No, there, there's no easy way. This requires surgery. This must be cut out. I, I have actually, this is a real surgeon's scalpel. Uh, proving, again, that you can buy anything on, on, on Amazon. Really, they shouldn't just sell these to anybody. And you probably can't see this from where you sit, but this is very sharp, and it's very precise. And you can see this is a fine-tuning precision tool. When I was having my surgeries, I've had a couple now. Uh, so many of you were so kind to pray for me, and you even put the date of my surgeries on your calendar so you could pray right at that very time. And a friend of mine texted me the question. He said, what time do you go under the knife? I was like, why would you use that phrase with me? You know I'm trying hard not to think about the knife. Nobody wants to think about knives, which is why polite people say to each other, what time is your procedure? What time is that thing you're having? You could have said, what time are you going under anesthesia? You know, what time are you going to sleep? You could have said it that way. I don't want to think about the knife, but when he wrote it, I did. There's a man who's going to come at me with a knife. And he's going to cut into me. And I signed a waiver to give him permission to do it. It's going to take two months of painful recovery. Why would I allow him to do that? Because the same surgeon's scalpel that will cause me pain is the same surgeon's scalpel that will bring my healing. I do it because I trust 
the surgeon. When you open God's word, say to God, God, do, do surgery on my heart. Cut out for me the things that should not be there. God knows where to cut. God knows what you need removed. God has your best interest at heart. God can be trusted. And so the two-word prayer on this, when you open your Bible, the two-word prayer is, pierce me. Use these words to do surgery on me. Remove from me judgmental attitudes, gossiping words, apathy. Remove from me the things that should not be there. Do surgery on me. And God will do that because God's word is alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. That's what the Bible says. The third and final image we'll look at that the Bible says of itself is bread. Bread. And this comes right from the lips of Jesus. You know this famous line he was teaching and he said this about the human uh, condition. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We feast on words. Jesus says what, what bread, what food is for the body, words are for the human spirit. They become part of us. We live differently because of the words we have received. So when you were a child, if you heard the words, I love you, and you heard words of affirmation, you, you took those words in, and they became part of you. When we eat food, it becomes part of us. We take it in, it becomes part of us, it shapes us. Those words, I love you, they became part of you, they shaped you, and likewise, if those words were withheld from you, if you heard words that were harsh and critical, those too became part of who you are. Those too shaped you. To feed on the word of God means much more than just to take in information, though information has its place. To be fed on the word of God means you take the words of God, the thoughts of God, and you take them into yourself. You allow them to become part of you. You allow them to shape you. Because you will be shaped by something. If you will not be shaped by the words of God, you will be shaped by something else. So choose a book of the Bible, something uh, short and easy like Philippians or 1 John or tackle something a little larger like Romans and feed on it. You know, we're doing 15 minutes every day. That's good. But when you can, block out a half day. Block out a whole day and just read the book of Romans. It doesn't take that long and back and forth. And you feed on that. You take that in. If you do that, something will happen. Those words will begin to shape you. And so the two-word prayer for this one, feed me. You open your Bible. Nourish me in your word. When we approach God's word, we stop when it's open and we pray, cleanse me, God. Lift all the impurities out of my mind. Renew my mind. And we pray, pierce me, God. Cut into me. Cut those things out of my life that should not be there. Do surgery on my heart. And we pray, feed me. Nourish me by these words. May my life be shaped by what I take in. I spent the better part of my adult life wondering why transformation seems to elude so many people. 
You know people, I do too, who have mastered the content of this book, but have managed to avoid transformation. How does that happen? And again, I, I, I want to say a lot of it is our approach to the Bible. We, we approach the Bible not for information, but for transformation. Maybe people approach the Bible not open to change. And so again, this, this idea of the Bible feeding us and doing surgery on us, we have to ask different questions. What is the Bible asking me to do? An obedience-based discipleship. A lot of it has to do with our approach. But I think also it's possible that transformation eludes people because what they're missing is a community element, a people element. We need other people to grow. And I want to show you this, this verse from Colossians on the New Testament church. And notice how much it talks about these words and message of Christ and how much it blends in the idea of community and relationship in this short passage. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since you are members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. Notice how much community there is in there. You are members of one body. Teach each other. Admonish each other. Worshiping together. People rarely grow in isolation. This is why we're such raving fans of small groups. Everyone needs a little community where they can know and be known, serve and be served, love and be loved, celebrate and be celebrated. Everyone needs an iron sharpens iron community. It doesn't have to be a formal group, but we need these kind of relationships because transformation is not automatic. We see a little recipe here. It's God's word illumined by the Holy Spirit, received by an open, teachable heart, and processed in loving Christian community. That's, that's where transformation happens. But make no mistake, God wants to transform us. God wants to renew our mind, and the scriptures are the primary tool. The Bible is unique. One last story. Uh, Donald McCullough wrote a book called The Trivialization of God. And in that book, he writes about a missionary doctor named Julius Hickerson, who was a doctor who felt called by God to serve the people in Colombia. This is many uh, decades ago. And his friends, uh, the doctor's friends, thought he was crazy. And in fact, he didn't see a lot of fruit from his ministry, and he died in a plane crash. And in the wreckage of that plane crash... The Colombians, the, the natives, uh, long ago, found a well-marked Bible that was in their language. And they read it. And they shared what they read with other people. And they began to believe it. And they formed little communities around it. And they started churches uh, around it. And the denomination that sent this doctor out had no idea that any of this had happened. So they sent out another missionary a few years later, unaware that any of this had happened, and when he got to this little tribe, discovered that it was entirely evangelized. He's like, how did, this, how did this happen? No missionary has been here. How could this happen? And they showed him a Bible, and inside the cover of the Bible was the name Julius Hickerson. Right? No, no other book can do that. This book is transformative. This is the holy Bible. This is God's word for us. This is God's revelation to humanity. 
Will you pray with me now? Well, God, we thank you for the Bible and its transformative power. Help us not to conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Cleanse us in your holy word. Pierce us with your holy scriptures. Feed us with your holy bread. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen.